All right. So um, we're fulfilling Anya's fantasy of having a three-way with Tal Ruspoli right here, <laughs> right now. Or is it Tal's fantasy? My fantasy of having a talk show and all of our yeah. fantasy of having a three-way. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> so and having a three-way talk show is just uh, yeah. as good as it gets. It's yeah. like multiple it, fantasies being uh, fulfilled at the same the time. That's the best. And like many three-ways, this is going to be messy. Uh, yeah. because we don't know who's hosting. We're all going to, it's going to be a simultaneous release three-way. Yes. Is that, yes. man, <laughs> that's the pinnacle. Simultaneous orgasm, for sure. <laughs> Three very talkative people trying to get a word in. And, and no one's hosting. Should we rotate hosting? No. Uh, no. 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 I'm an anarchist deep down, and yeah. I believe in no hierarchy, and... Uh, well, I'm 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 a conflicted anarchist, to be honest. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's exactly for that reason. Because I, I think hierarchy does have a place in the in the universe and in in art specifically. And uh, and so I, yeah. I struggle with this daily. Well, can you have like and this is fluid uh, anarchy or fluid hierarchy? You know triple what I mean? Entendre, the triple entendre. Is now we're gonna, <laughs> triple entendre. <laughs> not gonna end here. I'm gonna <laughs> triple. Um, no, but in the sense that. Uh, you know, like in, in tribal societies, there are hierarchies, but they're They're, they're fluid. like naturally selected, too. Right. Like yeah. you might be, like, obviously, of the three of us, you're the most talented in aesthetics, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, music. Uh, and everybody knows that. Business, like probably. Or, and yeah. so when there's a question, if we were all in a community together, when there's a business decision, we'd be like, well, what's Tal think? He, he knows. He's got all the Bitcoin. You know, like he made all these good investments, but if it's, you know, going to be something that Anya's the best at, then it's, in other words, the hierarchy isn't set uh, in stone. Yeah. Right. And it isn't, and it's applicable to different issues. There are different hierarchies. And the person yeah, malleable, themselves that's the doesn't appoint. That they don't appoint themselves. Yes. The, gr the group does, which I think right. is very important. No one's like running to be nominated or, you know. <laughs> no one even wants to be in a position of power. No. Right. Wanting to be in a position of power makes you ridiculous. Yeah. Influential militants, I think they called leaders in, uh, in like the anarchists in, in uh, during the anarchist movements in Spain during the Civil War. Because mm. obviously you need, you need decisions being made. You right. need... Uh, you do need leadership, right? And so there's not, I guess, you know, and I, again, I'm, I'm always come, trying to come to terms with these because I like the idea of, of breaking down boundaries and I like the idea of, of deconstructing hierarchies. But part of me is still kind of seduced by and, in, and kind of re in reverence of certain traditions, I would say, um, and some of those have kind of baked in hierarchies that I do kind of conflictingly admire. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how to do What's that, how to, how to deal with that. And I think it comes from my, 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 my uh, you know, dual background of like having a hippie artist mom and mm -hmm. aristocratic old family on my father's side. But then he was a rebel. So it was like, I have this just uneasy relationship to tradition but not so much so that i just want to reject it out of hand i want yeah. to uh, uh em embrace certain aspects of it and and I'm, I'm drawn sometimes to like a more conservative philosophy that says let's not 
with too much ease or flippancy throw out what's the traditions that have that are are much harder to create than they are to destroy maybe and and some tradition has evolutionary logic right it it has survived because it works you know like i i think about food taboos right that are um based on actual microbiological necessity you know some of those work uh you know, cook food, for example. I don't like sushi. You know, there's a reason. I don't want fucking you worms. Are missing out. <laughs> I know. Well, maybe that's a bad example because sushi well, it's is also its like own tradition. Just more meaningful, I think, which you can decide is what valid is? or not. Tradition or. Oh. Also, like, like Italians are very. I always joke that Italians are so reactionary when it comes to food. Like, you, you could have the most, you know, liberal, progressive, avant-garde, communist, you know, like I, radical in every way Italian. But God forbid you put like, um, you know, Parmesan cheese on fresh mm. tomatoes, mm. right? And, and sauce and on, you know, only if it's cooked tomato sauce. But if it's like a la queca, which is, mm. the to, you know, the pasta with the fresh tomatoes and mozzarella. If, if an American asks for Parmesan with that, they look at them as if they've just like blasphemed. Yeah. And what's interesting is that I'm sure deep down they're aware that there's no, there's no ultimate authority that's dictating that. There's no actual consequences. Mm. And yet there's a respect for this, like, you don't do that. Yeah. Right? And is so that, maybe manners are more important than like, like, uh, taboos let's say and that's a very european thing right one doesn't do x mm -hmm. whereas in america i think american culture is missing that the one doesn't do thing i remember speaking to uh, i've mentioned this before but i was speaking to this spanish friend of mine uh, about the difference between spanish culture and american culture and he said you americans have no sense of the ridiculous meaning meaning there is no one doesn't do. There's no like you want to make your you want to take a boat, put it on a car chassis, get a license, you know, a permit for it and drive it down the road. And that's your car. And everyone knows that's the guy whose car looks like a boat in America. That's like, fuck, yeah, man. What the hell? You know, and that's what I love about America. That's exactly. why I live here and not in your right. Room. There's a freedom. <laughs> and we have a boat in the desert and it literally upsets my <laughs> Italian cousin, Claudia. Really? She's like. I don't like this boat in the desert thing. And <laughs> until I convinced her that I actually take my boat out to the river and yeah. we use it, then she was okay. But she still like aesthetically, it bothered her. Right. The fact that there was a boat with no water. Right. And she, every time we talk, she's like, she would like be okay and like excited about my life here. But this one detail, she just kept harping on it. That's hilarious. And, uh, and of course I love the absurdity of it. Now Heidegger has a big thing about the one, which is like, one does exactly what you're talking about. There's like in a whole chapter on being in time about oh. what the power of the one, um, which an authentic person is supposed to transcend, but not ignore. So mm. the, the really skillful person, uh, and this goes for all domains, whether you're talking about carpentry or morality or, you know, music has to have a deep kind of embodied understanding of what one does. And then recognize that that is fundamentally ungrounded and then be able to respond to the, to the particular situation because of this kind of deep understanding that it's not that it's not grounded. So, you know, the Italian, maybe if 
maybe there's an there is I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there might be a scenario in which you would be able to put the Parmesan cheese on the pasta. Um and the authentic person would be able to do that. Or like with manners, I just remember hearing that my dad was so he was known for his great manners and one of the reasons that he was so masterful at manners was the fact that he knew how to break the rules because he was aware of them. So like you're not supposed to eat with the bread, you know, sop up the uh, the uh, the food afterwards, right? And people kind of make class distinctions based on somebody doing mm. that. But there was and then there's there's people who like trying to the, the the middle class thing to do is to use your fork with the bread and then and then eat eat it like that so somehow you're avoiding the dirtiness of it and that's even more tacky right <laughs> so you have the, the the uneducated person does it right that the bourgeois person do, doesn't do it because they are stuck in the what one does rigidly <laughs> And then the aristocrat is so well-mannered that he can say, look, I know this is ill-mannered, but it's so delicious. I'm going to do it anyway. Right. And maybe mm. like make some, some reference to it that shows that he or she is aware right. and therefore able to break the rule. It reminds me of the research. And the same in jazz, I'm sure. And everything. Well, I mean, that, yeah. you know, yeah, you learn your instrument and then you forget it, what you've learned, right? Exactly. But it uh, reminds me of this research I, I, I may have mentioned to you about women being attracted to men who are more well-dressed. So they, they take the same men and they dress them in like a t-shirt and jeans and a suit and tie. And they, they flash these images before women and it's the same 15 or 20 men, but just dressed differently. And so the, but the women don't know it's the same men because they're seeing so many images coming by and they're just attracted this, how attractive they are, you know? And so they find same dude, but in the suit and tie women rate as more attractive. But then they add a third category of guys who are dressed in a way that is clear that they just don't give a shit. Like they're not playing the game at all. They're not playing the game at all. So it's, it's kind of what you just outlined. It's like the losers of the game, the winners of the game, and guys who aren't playing the game. Exactly. And a lot of the women rate that guy the most attractive. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost like a disdain. I understand the game, but I have disdain for it. Or, yeah, it's I, like, or like, yeah, you can imagine people wearing like expensive brands, right? That show a certain level of success. And then you go past that and it would be super, you could see it as super cheesy and tacky, right? Or it's like, like an expensive like, brand, but it's kind of torn. Yeah. Or it it mismatches with the pants. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I could do that if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So and are we all doing this? there is a mountain, this? then there is no mountain, then there is, is the famous Zen saying that then Donovan turned into a song. And it seems like we're going through this a little bit. Yeah. So, so the idea is in Zen is that yeah. when you, well, before you start studying Zen, you look at a mountain and it's just a mountain. Then you, then you start studying Zen and you, you question everything. And then you'd wonder, is the mountain... There is no mountain. It's all an illusion. And then you reach Zen mastery and you look at the mountain as just a mountain again. But yeah, I think we're also having like a particular individual versus the collective debate going on in how we're handling a lot of different things, right? Like whether it's like we're, we're standing for sovereignty and freedom and the individual person has responsibility or do we have a responsibility to the, to the collective? What is the collective? And there's a tension built in, like you can't, if you, with language, for example, if you, if you just invented your own language, no one would understand you. And yet you want to say original things, right? So we have to kind of accept that there's a, you know, mm. there's some group, uh, you know, the, 
there's, there's, there's a collective acceptance that these are the words we use, and then we try and create originality with that, right? Mm. So I think it extends to every domain. And are we all, are each of us doing this in our lives in a more macro sense? Like we've learned, none of us have a job, right? Yeah. Um, uh, is that the goal? Is that that you learn how the world works well enough to disengage from it on your own terms or engage with it on your own terms? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that's what authenticity boils down to. Yeah. You have to, you, and in order to disengage from it, you have to have a pretty deep understanding of how it works. I think that's the difference. Hopefully. Right. And, and a whole bunch of other factors like luck and... Right. And... And knowing who you are kind. and what and you who, I mean, it's, yeah. I think a lot of it is just <clears throat> brute luck, but. Have you ever had a job? No. I've had, I've had like, I've worked on films. I had great experiences uh. like being an, a personal assistant for, and a, and a production assistant for, and I'm really grateful for like these few jobs I had working for some people who wouldn't be allowed today that the level of hazing and kind of I worked for this production designer Dean Tavalaris who was like uh, did all of Francis Ford Coppola's films and he was genius he'd won Academy Awards and but he was so brutal I'm talking about throwing things and screaming get me till I cried and like and now looking back I think it was nice to see that level of kind of again hierarchy and discipline and brute like fascist fascistic force <laughs> as part of a stepping stone towards like doing away with all of that i kind of like that i have the, like integrated that that experience um but yeah no for the most part i've i've managed to live on you know life on on my own terms even when it meant living in a bus for several years because i didn't have I'd rather have no job and no house than a job and a house. And so, <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing. I, I was on a podcast recently called something on the edge or, or something like that. Um, and anyway, the whole, no, it was like, it was, it was creative rebels. I think it was called. And the whole idea was how do you live your life on your own terms? How do you get away with that? And one of the points I wanted to make was people think you need to make more money to buy freedom, but I think it's much more efficient to dial down your expenses. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All the people I've most like, you know, I've had most reverence for whose lives have, you know, been lived on their own terms have been people who didn't have the means. I, I, I know people with a lot more means who live much more kind of imprisoned lives. Yeah. And people who have much less, whether it's like my friends in Spain who live in the flamenco world or when I was living in the bus for years and traveling around and encountering artists who were, you know, just dedicated to not only living life on its own, their own terms, but to creating on their own terms and therefore having an original voice, whether it's in music or filmmaking. And, and those are the people I've looked up to always and tried to model. I think it's important to have role models. Mm. That's another, that's a, that's a good yeah. example of chosen hierarchies when, mm. you, when you have a mentor, they didn't ask to be your mentor. They didn't impose themselves as your mentor, sure. but it's okay to look up to somebody and say, yeah. that's, that's sort of what I want. I thought it was very interesting when we met your friend, Tom Sewell, who was turning 80 at the time. I think you and I did a podcast together with him mm -hmm. and I expected you to think of him as a mentor 
But what surprised me was he referred to you as a mentor. That's just, we were just like both mentors to each other and it's lovely. That's the first, <laughs> that's the only situation where that's the case. He's definitely a mentor to, uh, to me. And the nice thing about mentors is also you get to choose what, you know, what aspects that you want to emulate and it doesn't have to be the whole thing, right? Right. Um, I read yesterday, you, you, you become the thing you don't forgive in others. Um, yeah. Or you are the thing you don't forgive in others. Yes. And that's why you don't forgive it. You're yeah. still pissed off about it. Total that, that's projection. even better. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What do we not forgive in others? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think it depends, obviously, personally. But I, or just, you know, isn't it? I feel like it's a young quote or something that, you know, what we hate most in others is what we hate most in ourselves. Right. No question. When you have, yeah. when someone has a quality that really bothers you, look honestly and you yeah. have that quality. Because if someone has a really bad quality and you don't have any of it, you'll just feel bad for the person. Right. Yeah. But when you have, and I think that's time. why narcissism bothers us so much in people. I was thinking mm -hmm. about the fact that that um, most pathologies or most like, um, what do you call them? Not pathologies. What are, when things that are in the DSM, what do you... Um, psychological disorders, disorders. Right. most yeah. disorders you would feel bad for the person who had it you would feel sympathy and empathy and you would not assign moral blame for it but narcissistic personality disorder we put 100 percent of the blame on the person who has it and as if they could just get rid of it and then we and we hate them right and i was thinking about the fact that i wonder if that's because we're all you know closet narcissists i know i am so say the three of us with microphones in front of our faces. Yeah, exactly. With an audience. Not even so closeted. <laughs> yeah. We're coming out of the closet. Don't hate us, please. Like we're being drawn right now. That's how narcissistic we are. Uh, yeah, this is probably a good moment to mention that this is up on my YouTube channel, Chris Ryan. Uh, if you want to watch us swatting flies and not just listen to us swatting flies. And it will also be on your YouTube channel. Yeah, correct? on the Being in the World podcast, which is uh, youtube.com slash Ruspoli and also on uh, Spotify and uh, iTunes and stuff like that. Right. And we're co-releasing this on Anya Katz's uh, Millennial's Guide to Saving the World yes. as well. So just a full It's big just circle. everywhere. Yeah. You can listen to this five different times, yeah. uh, <laughs> watching it twice and listening three. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I thought I, I was thinking that the, the conversation was going to steer in a different direction. I like that you never know what's going to happen, but I steer read, it. I read uh, uh, something yesterday that Confucius said that really kind of struck me as, as kind of reflecting this moment in my life in the last few months. And, um, and it's not often that I read a little quote meme type thing that strikes me this, this strongly but this seemed so apropos and I thought it could guide our conversation a bit and it was we only we all have two lives the second one begins when we realize we only have one mm. and I love the, the 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 paradox of that and at the same time how profoundly true it is mm. and um I've uh had these like crazy tragic uh in your face reminders of the fragility and uh finitude of human life recently and 
what's been amazing is after the the grief of like you know waking up and crying every morning and or driving and having to pull over and just like just being overwhelmed with like this sadness i'm i'm discovering that with this kind of un, not only conscious but unconscious like reminder of of the possibility of death comes this kind of burst of creativity and i think that we we can fall into a place of thinking that that oh you got plenty of time to do everything and again this isn't conscious thought necessarily it's more of a, of a posture and a feeling that's deep-seated and unspoken that you've got plenty of time so you might as well you know you don't have to do things right away and now like you know two months into these experiences which we can get into if we want um i've had one podcast about it already what these two tragedies back-to-back -back tragedies that i've experienced but it's it's kind of given me this uh this new kind of lease on life and on realizing like okay let's do this let's have these conversations let's you know i'm taking more pictures than i ever have before and playing more music and just having a sense of focus and and of uh of just urgency of creativity um and of engaging with people and with mm -hmm. of like appreciating the people of friendships and 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 the other day you guys showed up here and my dear friends Danny and Deborah who are behind the camera they like surprised me with a visit and I'm just feeling like just overwhelmed with the these meaningful and old friendships like manifesting here so anyway that's a, a little bit of a ramble but it's <laughs> <Yeah, I laughs> what like I've been thinking been, about lately yeah I think I just released a podcast that was just me called everything is beautiful and dying Ooh, and I feel yeah. like that's just sort of been, I feel like that's been my state for a while, but particularly this past summer, driving through hundreds of thousands of miles and acres of burnt uh, forest that had only previously been reforested. And it was like the magnitude of the problem, <laughs> but yet we're out in nature and it's beautiful and there are rivers and we're so appreciative and it's so amazing. And we also feel really inspired, but it's just like always has this component of there's a real bittersweet <laughs> quality to these summer trips that we do. Yeah, and know? I feel like it's getting more Every intense. year, yeah. yeah. Because of the, the, the fires and, and climate change and all this? Well, or? I mean, initially, you know, you go up to the northwest, Oregon, Washington, up, <clears throat> up in there, and it's just, you see these beautiful mountains that are totally denuded, just ripped to shreds, right? Down to the roots. And mile after mile after mile, as Ani's saying, Without the fires, you just see like, these aren't forests, these are tree plantations, right? The topsoil washed away 200 years ago and it's just replanting, rip it out, replant, rip it out. And it, it's like, I remember having this image, it, it's like seeing a beautiful woman who's been abused. Who's, she's still beautiful, but man, she's, she's living a really hard life. And now we're running from the smoke every fucking summer, right? It's apocalyptic. And you're checking on your phone, the smoke map app. And like, where should we flee to now? You know, our eyes are burning. It's hard to breathe. It's fucking crazy. My, my friend, Jeff Frost, who's a great filmmaker and photographer, and he's been living on, on my boat here in the desert. Um, and 
he is made, made a lot of films about the wildfires and he's like filmed hundreds of them. He goes around oh, the country. Right. I remember that. And, yeah. uh, and so he had these very magnificent images of these fires and he posted on Instagram saying, wanting to make fun of the motivational poster. Yeah. And he said, uh, caption this as if it was a motivational poster. And then the, the, the best one I'll actually print. And I was one of the uh, winners of the caption contest. And I wrote, uh, don't be sad because it's over. Smile because it happened. <laughs> <laughs> With an explanation point. So I'm excited. One, my, my award is going to be a, uh, a printout of this poster. And I can't nice. wait to hang it up in nice. my room. But in a way, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, well, and this brings us to humor, right? Like, yeah. is humor the only rational or perhaps irrational response to our current situation. Like we are partying on a sinking ship and people are arguing about, you know, whether you're taking too much from the buffet, right. but the fucking ship is going like, you've got performative recycling in your kitchen. I mean, that's, that sort of captures the moment, you know, <laughs> it's like a plastic here, glass here, organic. And then here. it all goes in the dumpster because we haven't figured out how to get the actual recycling that I feel embarrassed about this, but <laughs> Well, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. It's, uh, I, where should this thing go? I said, actually, it's performative. Yeah. I'm, I, it's, uh, <laughs> but isn't almost all recycling is performative at this point? Because China stopped taking our recycling. So it all just goes to the dump anyway. But they're keeping the infrastructure going because they're hoping they're going to find a way to recycle plastics. Oh, so and what's happening in my kitchen is actually happening. It's happening yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So even people who think they're doing the right thing in recycling, they're, it's all going to the fucking dump. Fuck. Yeah. It reminds me, what did you, what was it, Edward Abbey that talked about, like, don't get mad at me for littering on the road. The road is the litter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting. People react very negatively to that. I know. Well, I, I get it, but it is. And I did too. Yeah. It's in one of his novels. He, th he throws a beer can out the window and he says, and he's an environmentalist and, and a, you know, he sort of started Earth First. You probably heard of them. Mm -hmm. Um and he's like, yeah, I know that seems strange, but uh, the beer can's not the litter. The road's the litter. Wow. You know? And it, I mean, that speaks, it's kind of trivial in a way, but it speaks to, you know, what is the systematic destruction of the environment? Is it yeah. that I don't recycle or is it, you know, the power plant that's built out there? Yeah. And it all goes also like there's, there's a politically, it's, it's a kind of facile thing to like, blame the you know think that that the individual can fix these things yeah and uh and think you can like fix global warming by buying a prius it becomes individualistic and it becomes consumeristic often which and just it feeds into it self-congratulatory yeah. it becomes yeah. sanctimonious it becomes all the things we don't want to be yeah. as progressive <clears throat> people and i think a recognition that you have to change you have to change the institutions it's more difficult right um and, and can seem more daunting. And of course, you know, personal choice does factor into things. If enough people make, you know, changes, I, I believe that that's, that's, that's uh, a worthy goal. But if it's the only one, it's, it's really hopeless, I think. Well, it, when that point was really driven home to me when I learned that the partnership for a clean America or whatever, do you, I don't know if you remember, there was a, an ad campaign Shortly after the first Earth Day in like the early 70s, there was this very moving ad campaign where this you see this American Indian in a canoe going down a river 
and it's like this beautiful, you know, very classic American scene. And then you see all this plastic shit in the river and you, you see that he's, it's now he's in the, you know, industrial and this tear comes down his eye, runs down his cheek. And then it says, you know, do your part to clean up America or something like that. First of all, he wasn't Indian. He was Italian, the actor. Secondly, that ad campaign was paid for by by plastic manufacturers. So the whole idea was to displace responsibility from the institutions, from the structures that are destroying the environment to the individuals. You do your part. Do your part. Don't look at us, right? Don't look at, yeah. you know, eat, eat organic food. Don't talk about the shit that we're pumping into the air and the river. Yeah. You know? Go- and yet there is cause for optimism in the sense that in the 70s, rivers were regularly catching fire, right? Yeah. And they were just really disgusting. And then there was an environmental movement that did manage to get, you know, institutional change yeah. enacted and Environmental Protection Agency and all of that. And, you know, that was coincided with, Earth Day and people, you know, I think people organizing and showing that things matter to them en masse is essential. And part of that probably is people changing their daily habits and and making those because one thing certainly doesn't change anything is just having an opinion. That's the problem with like, you know, social media, activism, mm, right? It's like right. everybody just says what they think sounds good for to, you know, signal to their group that they have the right you know opinions yeah and that just does nothing right then yeah. you have probably the next stage up is actually doing things whether it's you know eating consciously and you know whether that's your you're eating you know organically sourced humanely treated meat or you choose vegetarianism whatever it is that you think is the way the world should be i think there is a difference between acting your beliefs and just having beliefs. I think that we should. And then I think the, you know, the, the most uh, actually effective thing is to organize probably, right? As, as, as groups and, and, yeah. and demanding change, right? But I think that's also like, we can't agree on anything. I agree. I feel like if we could all get together and even just hold one collect, collective belief, we would get so much done. And I feel like that's the other thing that's been really upsetting, like traveling through rural Montana and Idaho and just seeing the division as far as, you know, politics and masks and everyone's just so angry. Yeah. And so there's a reason the institutions probably foster that sort of divisiveness about what counts as true. It distracts from their role and their responsibility. When you were talking, it reminded me of, of religion and how we live in this time where religions are sort of collapsing and at least in our part of the world. And I often think, you know, I'm not religious, but I have, I have a friend, uh, one of my closest friends who raised his kids in a religion. And, and I said to him like, but do you really believe in this? And, and he was sort of evasive about whether he actually believed in the religion or, but he said, it's better for them to be raised in a religious community. It's better for them to be raised among these people who have shared beliefs. So it, it's almost like it doesn't matter really if the belief is true. What matters is that you're building a community and you're taking care of each other. It's like the secondary effects 
of being in a religion are Pragma really good. Pragmatism isn't true, but it works. For example, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> Meta pragmatism. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the whole presence of death thing, you know, my podcast every episode so far, pushing five hundred, ends with a song called "Smoke Alarm," which says you're going to die one day. The whole song is about, hey, go for it, because you're going to die one day, right? Don't worry about what people think about you. Don't worry what you got. You should have said what you're going to say. Just go for it. And um, I think that there's an element in modern society, I wonder if you guys agree with this, that distracts us from our own mortality so that we will undervalue our time and sell it at a cheaper price because we think we have plenty of it. Good, good. Yeah. Does that resonate with you guys? I mean, how can you sell your time for 12 bucks an hour unless you think you've got so much of it? Or you have no choice. Well, or right, you have you, no and, other but, options. But, you know, yeah. create yeah, the desperation to where there is no other option. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, I remember reading Castaneda. Um, Don Juan talks about how death should always hover over your shoulder. So, so I think there's a parallel between the death hovering and the groundlessness of existence that we were talking about earlier. There are these two features of existence. It's, it's you know, the fact that it will end and the fact that there's no ultimate foundation for it, which allow for a certain freedom, right? Because um, if we had infinite time there would really never be any reason to do one thing instead of another because you could always do the other thing somewhere down the line right so so like heidegger calls this running forward into death so every choice represents the death of every other choice because there's an end and therefore a choice matters a choice wouldn't matter if there wasn't an end and i think that we can we can forget that and death comes to remind us of that uh, hopefully, hopefully. I think about a hunter, a hunter gatherer's kind, or a farmer who has to kill his food every day. Kills a chicken, right? Kills a pig, hears it scream. There's a presence of death that our society isolates us from, right? Our food comes in packages. It's, right. it's. We don't see the death. Someone else is yeah. seeing it. It's even human death, right? Well, it's all. Yeah away somewhere and kids don't fall and nobody hurts themselves and we sort of become numb to that kind of i mean i think physical and psychological right challenge and stimulus sort of like you know that initiation that i imagine you went through when working in film right like fuck okay i have to get through this i have to step up to the plate and then we're missing that i mean we're missing mentors we're missing initiations I heard an interesting person on your podcast who was like a, a recovering vegan who said that, and she was vegan for like 17 years. And she said, you know, one thing that vegans are doing is they're just like not having the death on their plate. Yeah. Right. But right. you don't realize, like I, I saw some, some, someone said, you know, death per avocado. You don't, you don't want to talk about the fact that in order to plant an avocado 20 acres, they have to kill every single thing in that 20 acres, mm -hmm. every insect, every gopher, every, uh, the, the soil itself has to be totally destroyed. And then like rebuilt up with only. bone meal. Where does yeah. that come from? Exactly. Yeah. And so like maybe face, and this was like the argument for when in the, in the nineties, when I went to Spain and I went to bullfights, which seemed like this, like, 
you know, cruel and brutal and savage, you know, ritual to a, a, a modern sensibility. But the argument for it was let's not let's not like shy away from the 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 violence and brutality of life. Let's face it. And maybe, you know, I mean, often people would say, how can you possibly go to a bullfight or, you know, eating meat every day? And like, w and then you say, oh, well, there's new, it's giving me nutrition. I don't know. I don't want to defend it. Like, I do think there's a cruelty that is no longer appropriate in our age. And I think that seeing the end of bullfighting is probably a good thing. That said, I think there is, we have to acknowledge that we are sweeping death under the rug over and over again. And there's got to be a, the consequences to that because it's not really going away. It's just like our, our relationship to it is being, right. and maybe some of that meaning that does come from facing mortality is lost when yeah. we don't face it. Right. And also the thing with the bullfighting, you know, the, what I've thought is, would I rather be the bull in the ring who's suffering 15 minutes of torture, essentially, but had an amazing life beforehand? Because those bulls aren't in stalls. Those bulls are in fields, yeah. big fields. They're running there because they want them to be as strong and wild as possible. Or you've got, you know, 99.99999% of cattle are in fucking feedlots. Yeah. Um, so, so there's something, you know, a reflection of human life as well. Like, do you want to be removed, protected, and yet have a life that's hardly worth living? Or do you want to have a crazy wild life and maybe end in some pain, um, but in a glorious kind of yeah. way? You know, I mean, what is it to die? It's an hour? at most and and many cases not even an instant yeah it's yeah no, i i've i've thought about this with tom sewell like his his brother got cancer and he decided not to have any treatment and just stay home and and he said he had just lovely life and you know just got medicine to deal with the pain and then he like people hung out together when they knew it was over and he died in front of his friends and like it was when you compare that to like another I had another friend die like last year who was like treatment after treatment and just miserable in hospitals and just like, you know, and get to live a little longer. And for what, you know, like. But yeah, and again, like luck has so much to do with it, though, like there, there is there are people who get to live these long lives. And then my grandfather was night. My, my father's father was 90 years old and just ready to die and invited his sons over to be with him and he had like some caviar and some champagne and sitting in his chair and he just died knowing that that was it was time hmm. just closed his eyes and like I, that's just amazing you know and then my grandfather on my mother's side was only 60 and had had uh, got cancer and had to do all these treatments and it's just luck does that does that <laughs> fuck with you at all that 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 reality well it's luck but there are choices within the luck right you get dealt a hand but then you choose how to play it yeah so you well, know and also it's perspective like we have a friend who's 60 who was just diagnosed with cancer and we had a conversation and she was like 
I'm just not ready to go. And Chris said, what would make you ready? And I feel like it's this question of like, if you're living your life freely and the way that you want to be living it with a lot of meaning, at any point, it's okay. <laughs> at any point, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe this was unexpected or this is happening before I thought, but like, I'm good. I've lived such a full life full of different people and joy and tragedy and pain and yeah there's you know, and yet if you have sex. plans if you have urgency <laughs> and you have like the desire to do certain things before you die and then you told you're gonna die it must suck right. even more right. in a way if you or it just makes you i guess i mean i guess a lot of people who are who are diagnosed with terminal illness you do hear often that it just gives them a sense of of the profound meaning of what of the time that they have it's 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 weird right it's paradoxical that that people who are often people who often they need to comfort the people around them more than themselves and then they need to uh and then they feel more alive and more full of life and meaning than they ever have before once they get over the initial shock and they've mm. you know accepted it i think death is is ever present in our relationship because uh of the age difference you know we talk about that a lot like if we're still together 10 20 years from now you know i'm an old man uh, if i'm alive yeah you know so we talk about that a lot like oh how are we going to handle that like you know what's what are the provisions for that in crestone we both went and registered for the uh what's it called the end of life okay. project um they do open air cremations if you're a resident of the town really yeah and you pay like 25 bucks and you know you sort of sign these forms and um and uh one of the things that was interesting is on the form it said shoot because they make these little brass plaques that they put out on the pyre in the desert where they burn the bodies um with the birth the date of birth date of death and a little symbol and your name and on the registration form it was like what do you want your symbol to be on your death plaque amazing and it was like wow i have to like <laughs> choose that right now this little image that I draw on the paper is what's going to be on that plaque in a year, 20 years, who knows? And, and it really brought it home, you know? I'm amazed that they do that in America. It's the, the only, only place, place in North America that has the permit. Guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm I, amazed it's even legal. That's incredible. Yeah, I had the guy on the podcast who started it, Paul Kloppenberg. Really interesting. When my father died, I, I went to Italy and, and I arrived like two hours after he died. And now I'm grateful because I don't think I wanted to see him dying. Um, the rest of other family members were there with him. And, and then, so I arrived, I got off the plane. I knew he was really sick. So when they, they said, just fly, I, I had like just a tiny little bag, like this, like one of those bowling ball bags or something. And I just threw a couple of t-shirts and I jumped in. And it was really interesting. I, I went through the Rome airport and I just kind of walked with like kind of purpose and urgency and severity on my face with this bag. And I got outside and I got a tap on the shoulder. A guy showed me a badge, said, open the bag. Like I, this had never happened uh, before. Because you were looking nervous. Like I was looking nervous. I had very, I was alone. Yeah. I had no checked baggage. Right. I was walking quickly and I'd passed through customs and everything. <clears throat> and I, I, it showed me how amazing it is that how much they're paying attention to mm -hmm for certain things for you know drug trafficking and stuff like that so i explained no my father just died and I'm, that's why i mean and said sorry and let me go and i went there and um get to the hospital and he'd been moved to the you know the morgue part of the hospital and they said okay do you want to see him and i was like <gasps> i'd never 
seen a dead body. I'd never like, and I was like terrified because I'm also very queasy, you know, like I can get lightheaded from stubbing my toe or seeing blood. And I was like, am I really going to like go and look at this person who I just loved more than anybody on earth and just see their dead body? Like, can I handle this, you know? And, um, and I went in and after like, you know, getting over the initial kind of shock and nervousness, I found it so beautiful. And I was like this, this, the, the body that had been so full of life now looked ancient and kind of like a, you know, like a temple to this like existence. And then the next day there was going to be the, the, you know, the, the funeral or there's like, there's a part in Italy where they keep the casket open. Um, but they weren't going to do that because he had little kids, you know, I had little brother and sister who were just seven and 10. So they said, we're not going to have the, uh, the open casket. And I was super bummed. Like I wanted to like spend more time with this body. Right. It was just like, I had this weird, like fascination and attraction to it. And like wanting to just like hang out with it. And I suddenly understood why they do this in various cultures. And in Ireland, I think they have the body out and everybody drinks and hangs out with it like all night. And, and uh, I don't know, we, we, we have this, uh, I think, built in need to face this. And, and the culture is doing a lot to like, kind of take away that, that, that difficulty. <laughs> and I think it's at a, an expense, right? My grandmother died when I was eight. And uh, they had an open casket and everyone like went in a line and went up to like observe the body. And I was behind my mother and father and they both bent over and kissed the body, kissed her on the lips. And then I came up and I just like, that's what you're supposed to do. I guess I kissed this, my dead grandmother on the lips Wow. when I was eight. Yeah. And did it leave a, a, a powerful impression on you? <laughs> you were traumatized. <laughs> I think so. It explains all, all of your neuroses now. No, I'm, but I think I'm awesome. really into dead old ladies. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you had to go there, Chris. <laughs> Come on. It was slow and over the plate, you know? <laughs> I had to take a swing. Yeah. Well, I think it's also like the context of how it's presented, right? I mean, I do think there is a version of that that's like, you know, make up the dead person and all this ridiculousness and sort of treat it as like, oh, mm -hmm. there's, you know, they're not really dead. They're, you know, they look pretty. Like death is there, but it's not super present, I guess. Right. Versus like, you know, this person like being in a morgue or... uh I don't know. I, I just different from your grandmother experience, which I, which I imagine was sort of like, it was so weird <laughs> and so many and flowers. Yeah. So I still associate that strong sense of, um, smell of flowers with death, mm -hmm. which is weird. You know, yeah. like that's a, not a great. And of course there's the, so strange. So, so, so joking aside, the relationship between sex and death is interesting, right? Cause they're like the two opposing forces. In, in Freud, right, you've got like the death drive on one and the and the sex drive and the Eros and Thanatos, is yeah. it? It's interesting that you, they're on the same continuum, right? And maybe on the opposite ends, but we also, you know, bring them together. 
Yeah, I think erot- you and I were talking about this in the kitchen last night, this the sense that eroticism is is life. It's an expression of life itself. Yeah. And, I, and I was starting to say something about the, there are these stories about old folks' homes and like it's a hotbed of STD transmission because there's like one dude for every 15 or 20 women and he's Why? banging everybody. <laughs> Because men die earlier. Oh, I didn't know. On that. average, yeah. So old folks' homes usually have a, a high ratio of women. A lot of women, right. Good to know. And, <laughs> right. Something to look forward to. <laughs> if, if you make it. If and, you make it, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I've, what I've read is, you know, the, the interpretation of that is uh, the lucky old dude who makes it through, you know, has like 15 women that he's running around, and that's why there are all these STDs. But I'm thinking it's not lucky. The guy who makes it through is the horny dude because he's full of life energy. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's not just like, oh, he happened to make it. So No, it's the guy who made it is the guy who's riding that wave of erotic energy through his life. He makes right. it into his 80s. So one of Tom Sewell's uh, mentors in Hawaii was this guy, Rubak, and he was 100 when I met him. And he had been he had been in this amazing open marriage for like 70 years. And he and his wife used to like have, you know, sex parties and everything. And he was just like all about his libido, you know. And, and when, he, when you asked him what's the secret to living to be 100, he said libido. It's all about the libido, you mm. know. And that is exactly agreeing with yeah. what you're saying. And then I went to, back the next year because I go like try and go once a year or two to visit Tom and and I said, how's Rubak? He's like, oh, he's dying. He's 101. He's got a beautiful, you know, hospice care in this beautiful wooden house in, in, on Maui. And we're going to go see him. And, and, um, and this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life still. It's like we go to this house in the middle of the jungle. And there's this 101-year-old man. And he's laying down on this kind of massage table in the middle of a room with like surrounded by like nurses and caretakers and people just like making his transition as, as easy as possible. And, and he was lying there and he said, it's all about love. And I was like, he made that, that move from libido mm. to love in these last few months of his life from mm. age 100 to 101. And obviously that probably is the final step and maybe we don't have to wait forever or we can build the love into the arrows. Um, mm. But I think, I, I just, I don't know, I just love that kind of arc that I witnessed. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like instead of birth being at the opposite end of the spectrum from death, that it's like sex or creation. That's sort of like if we're not sort of moving forward and, and creating things and being inspired, that that is a sort of death. Um, yeah. yeah. What did Dylan, if you're not, if you're not busy living, you're busy dying. Yeah. yeah. But you're going to be busy with something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a much worse death, I think, than death itself. The, to, just the fade. To be yeah, dead but living. Yeah. Um, zombies. Well, why are zombies so in right. our consciousness? Not mine particularly, but the public consciousness. I don't... It's a nonsensical concept, the living dead. These dead things walking around like that TV show that was like this huge show. They're already dead, but you're killing them. 
like what? And like sometimes, some uh, it's just Do you like have a theory on what this says about the collective unconscious. I I feel like we it's what Anya's saying. It's like so those cattle, right in the at Kalschwitz, are the living dead, and we right. eat them, and we are what we eat. So many people are living dead. They just get up, they do their thing, they go home, they pay the bill, they blah, 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 just going through the fucking motions. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, you know, that's, you know, I, I harp on this kind of shit all the time. And what's your, what are your thoughts on suicide? I, when I was in graduate school, I applied for a job as a suicide hotline operator, counselor, whatever, in San Francisco. And um, I went through the different stages of the interview. And then I had the last interview with like the director and I'm sitting across from his desk and he says, uh, so, okay, you're in graduate school. I see you've done this course and that course and you've been around and you know, you're older than most of the people who come in here and um, everything looks fine. I, I just have one last question for you. Um, do you think suicide is ever the right move? And I said, yeah. And he said, damn can't hire you because that's you know that's it and I was like yeah of course it is sometimes um but I understand his perspective he can't have me on the phone saying yeah you might as well jump you know if I were you um but yeah I my grandfather on my on my father's side um had diabetes and Around the time I was maybe eight or nine, he they cut off one of his toes because he had gangrene. He had you know the, and he wouldn't stop drinking, and he was an abusive, angry, very unpleasant man. And we used to go and visit him at least once, normally twice a year, especially at Thanksgiving. And every time we went to see him, he was missing more of his body. And so from the time I was eight until I think he finally died when I was in my early 20s. We'd go visit him, and he had this hospital bed in the living room, this little house they lived in, and he would piss in a wine carafe and then just like leave it on the tray next to the bed so the room always stank like his piss. And he would, you know, had a bedpan to shit in. And every time he was like missing his foot, then he was missing his leg, then above the knee, then they started on the other leg. And each time, and it was just horrible horrible disgusting he didn't like his wife he was abusive he was angry and so I grew up in those visits just thinking why don't you die why are you here the only pleasure in your life is the disgust that you provoke in everyone else just fucking die dude and so for me it was a very I have a very strong sense of like we each own our lives and if you want to end it end it don't drag it out and torture everyone around you so i don't know that's how i feel about suicide but, who makes but that's the, a particular kind right, and of who suicide makes the judgment you know? call too right because someone's suicide is gonna i don't know register for one person differently than the other and like what are the factors that go into deciding when it's a good decision versus not that seems insanely complicated it's very complicated and it's very personal obviously but i was angry at him for not having the courage to die right 
So I don't. But I mean, you're lo- you're you mentioned the two two people close to you who have whose lives have ended recently, and it seems to me those were very different situations. Neither of them was an angry, old, sick person. No, they were both young. One we don't know if it's if it's actually suicide, but it's probably. But there's been never a body found or any knowledge of what happened. So that's just a weird unsolved mystery and then the other one was brutally you know 46 years old just a year older than me very good friend was living on one of my properties in in bombay beach i spent a lot of time up here and you know shot himself in the head just outside you know in view of the people the poor person who found him who luckily another dear friend of mine who amazingly was kind of equipped to deal with that and um you know just psychologically and spiritually and um you know leaving behind a a a seven-year-old daughter and a mother and a sister and me who's like pathologically optimistic and always like trying to and succeeding and painting a very rosy picture of almost anything that happens had a lot of trouble kind of processing that because it was very difficult to find any like silver lining yeah except the fact that if someone was in that much pain that they could just be out of it i mean that's 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 the silver lining and i agree that people should be allowed to do that like we didn't ask to be here we didn't choose our lot what why do you i think that with that comes the possibility of 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 giving back the ticket as dostoevsky says in uh Mm. in brothers karamazov like there's like you've been admitted to this to this show that <laughs> i don't think you i don't think you sign up for an obligation to be in it i think that everyone has the has should have the option to check out and they should do it be able to do it in a way that's as dignified and painless as possible i think that we treat animals our animals better than we treat each other in this regard like uh the fact that you know you could you you can't imagine a, a dog with a great life free from unnecessary suffering and seeing wonderful things and having love and affection. And then when the dog gets sick, you say, okay, that's it. Like, I'm not gonna, why would I make you just have like mm-hmm. endless pain now? Yeah. Like you've had a great life. And I think, you know, obviously we have a sense of the sanctity of human experience that goes above and beyond that of animals. And maybe that's, you know, I can see the logic behind that. And, um, and of course, we if maybe in a scenario where it was too easy to do, people would do it even if they didn't want to because they felt pressured by their family. I think these are all real considerations that need to be taken in. But philosophically, fundamentally, I think we should all have the option. And I'm sure everybody thinks about how they would do it, at least sometimes, right? I mean, you want to have an exit plan if... Yeah. if uh, and I think that that's okay. We shouldn't be so sure. like, it shouldn't be such a taboo. Like it would yeah. be nice if there was like ways to, to do it. Obviously it shouldn't be too spontaneous. And you, in these two scenarios, I think both of these people had great lives that they could have pushed through. And part of me obviously believes in some point, at some point there's some like inevitability and destiny. And, you know, we obviously have a tendency to, think about how things could have been but they never turn out different than they did so we have to you know accept at a certain point that things just are the way they are but um insofar as we might have choices in our own lives and in the lives of our culture i think that we should 
build in a certain mechanism for exiting mm -hmm. in uh, by your own will i think it makes sense like um i, I certainly don't want to have a horrible end of my existence I, I think about like if i was diagnosed with something terrible or like life became unbearable i would certainly want to have the option of doing it in a yeah. way that's my own choice and hopefully with a little bit of you know pleasure at the end of like the right drug combination that makes you go out peacefully and right i know someone who a veterinarian who euthanizes animals often what do you call a veterinarian who only knows how to deal with one species and only can fix half their problems <laughs> a doctor <laughs> oh, <Jesus. Go> on. <laughs> uh yeah well she euthanizes animals and she had a pact with her mother uh that she would euthanize her mother uh when the time came her mother had alzheimer's Wait, i hope i have somebody like that yeah yeah well and it's also like how do the lack of options for sort of a dignified death provoke situations where people have to do it in a way that is inevitably gonna hurt others um or shock others there's not like yeah. you can't go to a you know a place and say okay or you can't go to your friends because they're going to judge you. And so what like are you supposed out, to burger. do? Yeah, exactly. Like, can you imagine if someone was like, no, seriously, this is what I mean to do to their group of friends and family? Of course, they would all say, no, you're ridiculous. I'm not listening to you. You're wrong because of me and because I'm right. here and you can't do this to me. Right. And yeah, I've never thought about that. But I feel like obviously our lack of acceptance and our, sh and our shaming or pathologizing of the thing like sex it doesn't make it go away. It just makes it be expressed in less intentional, unconscious, unconscious, dangerous, and hurtful right. ways. Often while drunk. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 the thing about suicide that I find confusing is that it, for me, there's an element of anger. I mean, you know, I described the anger I felt at my grandfather for not dying. But I think like when Anthony Bourdain killed himself, I was pissed. Like affronted yes. and I think a lot of people felt that and so what do you think that said about obviously it has nothing to do with Anthony Bourdain it has something to do with you what is it what does it tell you about yourself it it, f it tells me I, I felt affection for him even though I didn't know him personally mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people felt like he was a knowable guy through the TV set you know mm -hmm. well in the circumstance of it too right yeah the yeah. kid and the stupidity of it. It's like, oh, your girlfriend's fucking someone else? Like, and you're going to kill yourself over that, dude? How old are you? Like, grow the fuck up. Grow a pair. Um, so there was that. And, and like, you got the best life in the world. You got the best life. You got all this money, all this fame, all the whatever you want. And you can check out. You can just say, you know what? I quit the show. Too much stress. I'm going to do jujitsu and but paint. He checked out. Well, no, but I mean, you can check out without, Within, but you're, without. you're asking him to still, ex you're asking him to still accept all of the, the meaningful differences that we accept in our life. And I think when someone gets to suicide, they're rejecting all of the meaningful differences. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I think it, it's, it's a, it's a logical fallacy to have any sort of moral culpability assigned to someone who is like, has has committed suicide sure because no they doubt. have said i don't want any of this including all of the things that you think matter they don't matter to me anymore 
And that's at the, the moment. tragedy. But where's your perspective? Well, that's the thing, but you don't have it. Well, also, isn't moment. there something about like, uh, people who have jumped off bridges but not actually killed themselves. Yeah, they that while they're it. falling, they often report that they regret it, which I think is an interesting problem. Definitely doesn't apply to all cases, I would imagine. Yeah. But it's interesting that it exists at all. But there's also the physiological thing. You're falling through space. Right. Your body is saying, mistake, mistake, mistake. Right. Yeah. You right. know, even if your mind is, <laughs> is somewhere true. else. But I mean, what I was trying to say about the, the anger and the suicide is I think it makes mourning more complicated. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if L, for example, turns up, how are you going to feel? I mean, I think hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be some degree of like frustration and anger, but mostly relief, right? We hope, right? I think anger is uh, a deeply kind of selfish emotion. Like it's always to do with you. There's, I think there's a Buddhist saying that says if you take the selfishness out of anger, you get determination. So I think it's all, it's like jealousy. Um, it's about you. Um, the, the, the corollary statement is if you take the selfishness out of jealousy, you get admiration. So mm -hmm. if you, I think that feeling, it's always like making it about you if you're mad. Otherwise, I mean, the person's dead, so this makes no sense to be angry at them. They're not there anymore. Right, but, they're, like, but they've done something that inflicted pain. That makes pain. you angry. Well, well, you're they, the they, angry one. Well, right, but they've done something that's inflicted pain on you. Yeah. Right. I mean, don't we feel a sense of mutual responsibility for each other's feelings when we're in a relationship? Like, I'm not going to do something. Aren't you supposed to never say you make me feel? Aren't you supposed to assume responsibility for your own feelings? Yeah. Okay. We have responsibility for our feelings, but you know, you wouldn't do something that betrays my trust. I assume that's why we're friends, mm -hmm. and I assume you're assuming the same thing about me. Yeah. I'm not going to like steal one of these paintings, right? Yeah. I'm a guest in your house. I'm going to treat it with respect. I would say you would have a right to be angry if I betrayed that. And so I feel like it's the same thing it's gonna fall. with feelings that in a friendship, you say, I'm, I open my heart to you because I trust that you'll treat me with kindness and consideration. So this is an argument for the more conservative like view of this this kind of the sanctity of human life um that goes beyond a kind of scientific worldview of like that's more deterministic and more saying okay we are just the products of our of our uh brain chemistry genetics experiences you know any, any sort of kind of logical scientific worldview would precludes that sort of responsibility that you're assigning and i'm not saying it's not true i do think that there is a there's a deep argument to be made for there for us being responsible agents it doesn't make any sense logically it, it requires a leap of faith of some kind and i think we should admit that even if we're well but as you leaders. said yesterday neither does the opposite neither one makes sense logically yeah well but it makes less sense i think in a way <laughs> Hmm. Well, I, also, I mean, yeah, yeah, it flies in the face of our experience. Our experience is of each other as responsible agents that have some sort of like depth and responsibility that goes beyond the sum of our of our parts and our. Well, otherwise, life causation. is meaningless. 
Yeah, that, yeah, of course, it yeah, probably is yeah. meaningless. Again, the the the, the science, other what you accuse Dawkins of is like as if we're all like able to make a choice that goes against that. That's a that's a almost a religious point of view. No, but I am accusing Dawkins of, and this is meaningless to people who are listening to the podcast because they don't know what we're talking about. But we can but, fill them in. It's important. But, I mean, it's interesting. But but the Dawkins is saying other animals have no agency over their genetic programming, but humans do. Mm-hmm. I say that's a religious perspective, basically, that makes humans angelic. I go the opposite way. I say animals also have agency. Really? I say, of course. I, I mean, the, 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 the Cartesian sort of view of animals as unthinking or, or the behavioralist Skinnerist view of animals as, as calculating machines with no feelings, no consciousness, that's nonsense. I, I mean, I look at Gatsby, your cat, that, that animal has consciousness, even a sense of humor, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think, I think animals exhibit, we were talking yesterday about a sense of justice in primates, you know, that's experimentally demonstrated. I think there's a lot of consciousness, and I think it's a typically sort of mechanistic, insulting, uh, you know, anthro, what's the word, where you, you place, everything's human. The only thing that matters is human. Human life is, no, other life is just disposable. Right, and that's also the reason for the destruction of the planet, right, I think. Because right. it extends to then other forms of life, like plants. And right, like nothing matters except me ecology. and my consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so, a, yeah, I don't know. It's a delicate balance. We keep coming back to like individual versus collective. I feel like responsibility. Mm. I do feel like. I mean, and also like you have, you know, you have a right to be angry is different than like living your life as an angry person who never right. gets over shit. And know? maybe anger yeah. is the wrong word. Maybe it's disappointment. Like I have a friend who or went missing and that. I think often like, what if he turns up? Cause he was an adventurer and maybe the ultimate adventure is to disappear. Right. right. But he's still alive somewhere and he's got false passport and he's, and it's like, dude, you hurt people who loved you. I mean, earlier we were talking about, like, what do you not forgive in others? Mm. I think that's probably it for me, that you intentionally hurt someone who loved and trusted you. Yeah. I find that very hard to forgive. Yeah. Yeah, and also, is the anger just an expression of sadness? I just have trouble. I guess I'm so torn about this. So I'm just always just playing devil's advocate when I say things like this, because I also believe the opposite just as much. But like... Give me an example of someone behaving differently than they did. <laughs> there is none. And how does someone not do what everything that their lives pointed them in that moment to do, do? But like, isn't that totally post hoc reasoning? I mean, it doesn't make sense. I'm just, again, like when the, but I, I, it's so easy to, 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 to say like, oh, if my friend hadn't killed himself and like, if he could just have done the, you know, but like Robert Sapolsky has this, everyone should listen to this podcast again, just at least to have that point of view as something to, to think about and take seriously. He's, you know, professor of neuroscience at, at Stanford, one of the smartest dudes in the world. My, my co-host uh, Patrick's PhD advisor. And he's like, show me the neuron that fires on its own, <laughs> that without any cause before it, like we're, we're going to, you know, the, the, the guy, he pulled the trigger on his head, right? And then we can show that there's the, 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 the thing that sent the, the, 
the the instruction the to the impulse to pull the trigger and then before that there's the thought that gave birth to that thing saying i want to kill myself because of this and this and that and then before that there's something that caused that there always is a cause before it there's no thing that has its own that the causes itself it just doesn't make sense the very concept there's no like there's no coherent way to explain i i the idea of it of it not having some sort of thing that caused it before that's it's like the very basis of our understanding of the world yeah okay and but you can respond many different ways to the same stimulus maybe well and also like what well, are you, what no, are you, you can using i mean that? you had a certain amount of money and you chose to spend it building this you could have built other things you know. could have bought land in spain you could have maybe. bought a sailboat maybe but what's like the purpose? <laughs> maybe what's like- I, I emphatic maybe <laughs> but what's like the, the purpose of that awareness because i agree that makes sense to me but then what like are we saying because there is no control and because it, or or you know everything's happening as a reaction to something else what does that mean like we don't react emotionally or we shouldn't or no, no, no. You know, I think that's just like we should. <laughs> I think it's like an argument for emotionality to some extent, but but like it's important that we don't stay there and live there and operate from that perspective because it's a waste of time. Like, okay, I'm angry, which means I'm upset, which means I'm sad, which means there's grief. Okay, let's process. But do you that. what do you think about free will? Do you think you choose your behavior or is everything just what it is? I find it to be a kind of boring out. question, honestly. Like because to me I just follow it. Okay, but so if there is or if there isn't, how does that change my life or influence my life, I guess? And and it doesn't really matter to me. I don't I just don't have any control. Well, but it matters in the sense of whether you can assign responsibility to other people for their behavior. I, yeah, but I don't, I don't like hold bl- blame or, or I'd not, I would like not to hold blame or stay angry or stay upset. Like I'll give myself permission to feel whatever it is that I feel, which I think is unavoidable to some extent and really important because if you don't like feel the pain or grief of a thing, I don't think you get the burst of creativity or the or the extent to which you like value life more. But if you just live there and you're just angry and bitter and pessimistic all the time, oh, of course. disappointed or even, or like thinking about how it could have been different. Like what is the point? That's such a waste of time. Well, but isn't like a therapeutic approach to like, you're a big believer in therapy. It's helped you a lot. Doesn't seeking therapy and doesn't the whole process of therapy sort of undermine the idea that everything is predetermined and we're just reacting to chemical but, impulses. Yeah. But only as a point to make you feel things, I think. Like, that's the only point. You Not to stay there. Yeah. Or to, uh, it's just like, hey, you should deal with your shit so you can get on with your life. I just, I just, I just deep down have trouble assign. I, I, I can assign some moral responsibility to people, but in these ultimate cases, like of somebody killing themselves, I really have trouble dwelling on the possibility of other things. It's so sure, final sure. and it's so just is what it is. Yes. Well, retroactively, like, no. It's, it's a ways. Yeah. So insofar as assigning responsibility is helpful in making, you know, like holding you responsible. Let's say you, you took off with my, my, uh, my photos in here. <laughs> 
I'd stop hanging out with you. And hopefully that would help like you not do that to the next guy because you say, I lost my friend for a photo. (laughs) (laughs) But if, if you killed yourself, I'd be like, you know, sitting there and being mad and saying you shouldn't have done that. It just seems like such a pointless. You'd stop uh, hanging out with me though. That I would do too. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I, I'm a utilitarian when it comes to yeah. like the, that level of like assignment of responsibility. Well, you and would then deep be, down whether you? the responsibility, whether it actually is true that things could have been different than they are, it's up in there. I don't think we'll yeah. ever find yeah. that out. You know, I remember, but one thing's for sure is that things never do turn out differently than they do. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's my takeaway, yeah. and they never have in the past. There's never been an instance, even once, of things happening the way, differently than. They and did. we don't have an experience so, of that. except yeah. in dreams and movies. Well, and why do we even want that? I mean, I guess that you know people get mad at me sometimes because I, not that I want to like avoid pain and suffering, or that I don't think that there's like just pain and suffering that wasn't meaningful in some way but i think like we were saying before you have a choice as to how you react to something and to say it could have happened differently means your entire life could have turned out in a different way than it did you know how someone's affected by someone else's death or just someone's injury or someone's illness like it's not interesting i'm i'm interested in how i yeah how myself or anyone else like made meaning or grew from an experience and you know had it metamorphize into something else rather than I remember how it could have gone. It's like one it. time I, I asked Stanley Krippner, we were driving somewhere and I said, so if you could hang out with any figure from history, any, any deceased, you know, person, who would it be? And he said, Oh, I don't think about things like that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't waste time thinking about things that couldn't possibly happen. I was like, oh, okay, interesting answer. It's a good answer. And then the other thing I was reminded of while you guys were talking just now was an interview I read with a lawyer who uh, represented murderers. uh, And he said, "I I can represent murderers because I can always forgive a murderer. I won't represent white collar criminals because any of us could commit murder. And so I feel like they, I want to defend them because any one of us could find ourselves in that situation. Shit goes wrong, you freak out, whatever, someone's dead. But someone who plans and steals and, you know, does all, fuck them. They're guilty. Fuck them. But the murderers, I have compassion for them. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So counterintuitive. But makes a lot of sense, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. So why do you want to be a talk show host? What's the appeal of that? Oh, because I just love this. I love, I love, uh, even though it's something profoundly frustrating about it too, because obviously conversations never, you know, like. Don't the, capture the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just like, it's this very Sisyphean, like, you know, task, mm. right? Of like, um, and yet there's something cathartic about it. There's something beautiful. I like I like um, the, the, the focus that comes from the way these podcasts like make us sit down and have a conversation mm-hmm. where in, if it weren't for this, I'd probably have gotten up like 10 times already and like, looked at my <laughs> looked phone, at phone and like, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's and just creative. It's like focus. a way to commune with people in a deeper way that used to happen probably over, you know, meals. I remember in Italy growing mm. up, there'd be like four hour long meals. Uh, there were this like beautiful thing. One time, like, we sat down so long at lunch that like we ordered dinner and like yeah, yeah. Uh, in the age before phones. And and then I just always just admired those shows from the, from I, 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 I do have this devil's advocate 
thing too. Like I, because I don't assign ultimate moral responsibility to anybody, I also don't hold people responsible for their beliefs and their political beliefs. And I'm, I have a certain detachment for better or worse from my own beliefs. I don't know if I'm right or, and, and so I really enjoyed just the, the dialogue. I think it's like, I love the William F. Buckley show where he always had mm. people on that were like, had the opposite beliefs of him. And I think this day and age is missing that. And you have like, you know, so you have this like smart conservative person, which who would firing line. Yeah. 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 And then he's talking about, you know, he's having a debate with Noam Chomsky or, 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 or Timothy Leary or, yeah. you know, one of the black Panthers. Or, and there were always these amazing like dialogues. And I think that that's a beautiful thing that's missing in this day and age. And we're, we're more and more, tribalized and you know only listening to voices that we agree with and mm -hmm. so I, I just think there's a nice space for it and i think it's an antidote to a lot of the add that's happening both in the culture and in myself yeah. i wonder so. if there's a <laughs> podcast called um uh sort of respectful disagreement i feel yeah. like that's what yeah. all of our podcasts are I mean, I, I've been thinking. Well, but I don't seek guests who I disagree with. We've talked about this. Of course, you you guys disagree with each other about a lot of things. Yeah, but I, I don't seek it. That's fine, but I'm saying like I. I mean, I'm not having a Nazi on my 100%, podcast. But you I know? don't think that's respectful disagreement. I think that's challenging debate or uh, yeah, fundamentalist there to, disagreement. There should be an Overton window, yeah. right? Like I, I think certain things should probably lay outside of the bounds of acceptability that they're so far out that like you don't need to engage with it but right. i think that the the overton window should be wider and i i'm more tolerant of views that are drastically different from mine and i do think it's interesting to like like in italy we have there was as a way to avoid fascism happening again they decided to have such a pluralistic system that you can even have a fascist party mm -hmm. and like but there, it's very difficult to hold and maintain a majority so you have these coalitions that are fragile Right. And I'm probably the only person ever to hold up the Italian government as, <laughs> as a model, as an exemplary <laughs> yeah. thing. But what I love about it is its inefficiency. Right. Right. And the fact that it's as an anarchist, it's very nice to see how difficult it is to hold on to power. Yeah. And you have this plurality of views where you don't have like everything being, um, you know, every view kind of like. What happens in this country is like you have the far right racist nationalist xenophobic fascists and the more moderate republicans all having to have the same identity and kind of um be dishonest in order to fit mm -hmm. in mm. that view so when i went to italy in 2003 and would talk to my fascist uncle who's like in still around in his 90s and would like you know say poor mussolini in the morning over breakfast i asked him what do you think about the impending invasion of iraq and he says Oh, I am man's, uh, Bush's man in Italy. I am very, very uh, supportive of what he's doing for two reasons. One, uh, war for oil is important. And two, I am for the Crusades. <laughs> and I was like, if only they would just say that and we yeah. could debate that on television instead right. of like all this nonsense about spreading democracy and everything. Right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a certain, I think there's a, there's a certain beauty and honesty to like allowing for a wider range of belief systems mm -hmm. and accepting that your own belief systems just because you have them doesn't make them right yeah um, and forming coalitions with different belief systems yeah. to get something done also, that you all agree on and your belief system doesn't negate anyone else else's belief system like they can coexist i'm not i'm not saying you know your opinion isn't valid i i just feel like we're going to circle been, full, full circle yeah, back to the anarchist like, and not like, how do you not impose the hierarchy, but have yeah. the hierarchy? Mm. I 
feel like I think about my podcast or podcast in general, just in, in trying, there's so many of them and, and why, why are they valuable or how can they be valuable? And I think it is more about the conversation in and of itself, not the topics we're talking about, but, but the fact that we're setting an example of how you can have a conversation that's really interesting and coming from a place of respect, um, but in, in, encompasses many different belief systems and experiences and opinions. I would like, okay. I would like to seek out more disagreement on my podcast. I just don't, I don't meet enough people. I think in Italy and in, in Europe, I think it would happen more often. Probably. I think we are in this country so tribalized mm. that I think it's probably unusual, even with all our traveling that we do and everything. How often do you meet a really smart person with a really different political philosophy from you? It probably doesn't happen much. Doesn't happen much and and if it does happen, we probably don't realize it because neither one of us wants to talk about politics. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, because we just don't want to get into that discomfort zone. Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely have people on my podcast who are, it's, it's interesting. I can think of people who I'm sure our politics are very different, but we're not talking about politics. politics right, exactly. We're talking about, you know, I whatever. Think, yeah, and I thing. think it's nuanced, but like I've recorded a, one podcast at least with someone who came to the table super argumentatively and like with a sort of fundamentalist belief and wasn't really interested in having a conversation with me about my side he was just more interested in sort of like promoting his belief system and arguing with me as a way to sort of like uphold his experience or narrative and i didn't release it because it's that's to me that's boring you know it it's fine i i love like you said too i think i, I was talking about this recently like that i think what i would like to do is have conversations with people who i disagree with but where the audience maybe doesn't even notice that we disagree about it that we're both sort of there we're on the same page at least as far as you know curiosity and respect and there's an interesting interest. thing that happens as well a self-selecting mechanism where you just recently had someone reject your invitation to be on the podcast because their politics don't align with yours enough right so there's well, I that mean, i did release some like particularly taboo episodes about gender and race and so I'm I'm not surprised, but yeah, it was it was interesting to have it happen, and because I don't think that's true. She said basically, I don't think our we have, you know, similar core values, which I think is actually probably wrong. Right. I just I'm not you know I, I think being woke and again like authoritarian or um, uh, shaming about <laughs> my politics is not what I believe, but of course I want equality for all people. And I think anybody should be able to identify in whatever way that they want. And I think our core values are the same. I think even people, these, you know, Trump supporters who, uh, live in wherever that we travel to, like, I think if, if we really could get down to it, we would all have similar belief systems. It's just yeah. the context of them is so different. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was maddening because I thought like, how are we supposed to, come together uh it was part of my sort of grief around the planet too like everything's dying and we're just yelling at each other about nonsense and we do share the same core values and we're talking about semantics or it's wonder, just such a waste of time i wonder if there's there are phases of response i mean almost like the phases of grief you know the denial anger bargaining acceptance or depression and acceptance 
I wonder if there are the same phases in dealing with this sort of global grief that we're feeling now. I wonder if, you know, maybe we were passing from denial into anger. And that's why we're all screaming at each other. And For then sure. the bargaining is going to come in where we're going to be like, okay, now we're going to invest in clean energy. And, but it's too late. You know, the, the, the methane bubbles are coming up in the Arctic and the ice caps are already going. And then we'll go into depression. I mean, I wonder mm-hmm. if this screaming is just a phase. Well, I think it's also, it's, it's happening both collectively and personally for people. I think like the fact that all of this is going on, the fact that COVID is going on is making people really desperate and examine their lives. And I feel like, you know, people are having their own personal dark nights of the soul while the collective is going through it. And it's an interesting mirror. Um, yeah. And it, and I think there's always this sort of like, Oh, you know, things could happen a asteroid could strike the planet or a volcano could blow up and put you know destroy everything but it's all this it's always so distant and abstract and with covid now it's like oh whoa that's not distant and abstract like this is real the the global economy shut down it's crazy right yeah yeah all right I think we better wrap it up. Are we wrapping it up? Do we all agree? Ta wants to look at his phone. All right. So we we don't feel bad for these guys. How long have we been going? This is a long an hour and a half. Wow. Standard. Um, It's about half a Rogan. Half a Rogan. It's amazing. (laughs) They're measured in Rogan's (laughs) (laughs) podcast duration, guys. Uh, Thank you. Yes. Promote your podcast. It's called Being in the World. And Anya and Chris have both been on now, and we're up to about 52 episodes. And um, it's on uh, YouTube, Spotify, and uh, Apple Podcasts. So, yeah. And and I just want to thank you guys for just coming here and, like, just having this time together oh, the last few on. days. I've, I've told you, I'm going to tell you publicly, just come here and just, like, live here if you want. Spend weeks or months <laughs> at a time here. See it as your home. Thank you. And it's just like, you know, for those of you who can't see where we are, we're at, in the Joshua Tree uh, in a shipping container that's been turned into an art gallery. And um, it's a, a magical space. It's that, magical. I, I, do you promote your... your oh, yeah, uh, you can come and, I, you, yeah. You can come and stay here on Airbnb. We have seven rentals on... Uh, from you know very luxurious the library which is you know i think like 300 bucks a night it's all you know on a shared compound of set you know six seven acres and everything from the 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 luxurious library to a little canned ham trailer for one and i love the only reason i live up here and can i don't do airbnb for the money as much as i do for i mean it's nice that it sustains itself i call it a capitalist commune because it's like actually it works to allow this kind of communal existence, but more than the money is the 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 interactions I have with people that are from around the world and yeah. so interesting. Always cool people here. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, it's very rare I get. So if you if you're not cool, don't come here, please. <laughs> they they stopped listening a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. If they're still here. They're probably cool. Yeah, uh, they want to listen to us. How, <laughs> how do people find it on Airbnb? What's is it under the whole JT or something? Um, I think if you just Google my name, Tao Ruspoli, and Airbnb, Airbnb. Joshua too, you should find it. Or the uh, library, Yucca Valley. I don't even know. <laughs> Follow me on Instagram and ask me if you want. T A O R U S P O L I. It's Googleable. I've 
I've googled I, you before. Yeah, it's not hard. <laughs> I'm I I I am not uh, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> oh, uh Love yeah, this will be on my podcast, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Sweet and tangentially speaking and on the Chris Ryan YouTube page. Thank you everybody.